G'day, and welcome to the AHDC podcast series, Health Design on the Go. I'm your host, David Cummins, and today we're speaking to Andrew Hemming, who is a Managing Director at Centuria Healthcare. For more than two decades, Andrew has worked across investment markets around the world with a focus on healthcare properties. As Managing Director at Centuria Healthcare, Andrew is responsible for strategic business growth in the health sector, while also trying to find health assets that provide cost-effective and best models of care around Australia. We welcome Andrew as part of our Future of Health series and look forward to understanding more about Andrew's focus over the coming years. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for your time to be here. Thanks, David. Good to chat with you. I've been in healthcare for about 20 plus years. You're very similar. I think it's only sort of now more recently where people are identifying the future of health, knowing that the aging population is going to increase, skill shortages is going to reduce. There seems to be a lot of investment into infrastructure at the moment. But I personally still don't see a way how we're going to survive the next 20 plus years with this aging population. As a health economist who has worked in health for a long time, what are your thoughts about the future of healthcare? I think the future is probably not as bleak as you're making out, but it is going to get tougher. We're very fortunate in Australia. We've got a very good public system, and that's probably the benchmark from which we can start to cost efficiencies and health outcomes in both the public and the private sector. What we've seen over the last... 30 years is public and private sectors probably work fairly well in terms of efficiency. So that means waiting lists for surgical or even psychiatric care um, treatment have been relatively short, I'm going to say four to six months. What we transferred to today, we've got the public environment where waiting lists are two plus years, right? Certainly as we have an aging demographic, that's likely to increase. The problem is actually the cost and sustainability financially of the private system. It's really expensive from a private health insurance point of view. It's expensive from a out-of-pocket customer point of view. And there are question marks on the outcomes of the models of care from a health point of view. What we have today is we've got a lot more transparency than we've ever had. So... We now know that there are better models of care which have better health outcomes. That's things like mental health. There's reason that people should go and have an average lengths of stay of 7 to 10 days in a hospital, but they should then also be out of a hospital and getting receiving care either in their home or in the community. That cost model is very different than what we're used to, having lengths of stay of 14 to 21 days. I mean, that alone changes the cost model, but it practically makes sense having people integrate into the community quicker and being serviced on a longitudinal basis rather than just an episodal basis, right? So when we think of care, cost is always an important factor, but the treatment of care, not just as a one-off, but as an ongoing care plan is vitally important to having that patient not then be readmitted even in the next six or 12 months, but even over a longer period of time. So you mentioned from the outset, skill sets and resourcing. COVID's highlighted some systemic issues that we've got. And we see it in some of our hospitals. Our hospitals are more efficient and they're better models of care, they're shorter lengths of stays, but still we're seeing it throughout the whole system, not just in Australia, but globally. Nurses is a prime example whereby COVID reduced the workforce, 
that some of the workforce went back overseas, about a third of the workforce. But also, a lot of the workforce are now opting out of the system because it's been pretty tough going for these individuals over the pandemic period. So subsequently, what we've seen now, only recently, as of last week, wages increased by a minimum 15%, and those increases will come. Therefore, if you've got increases in cost through wages and increase in competition, the model has to be more competitive, but it has to be based on both a cost point of view and a care point of view. And today, that's got to be built out. And as you say, over the next 20 years, you actually have to build, develop, and construct these models of care. The old models of care in big hospitals, in some locations will work. In, in some, it just will not work because they're too fixed in their costs and too inefficient. Yeah, I 100% agree. I do think now is a time to challenge those models of care. I'm still always surprised, as you talked about, these wait lists for the traditional cardio ortho neuro is well into the years now in public system. But why do you think there are people who aren't really taking up that private health model where they could reduce their wait time, even though still these days that private health care, that treatment is still a few months to yeah. years away now? There's two really simple reasons. It's really complex, but two simple reasons. One, private health insurance is opaque. It's hard to understand, even for those that work in the business community or in the health sector or in insurance, find it tough to navigate through what that health policy means in terms of rebates for the services that they may need for themselves and let alone their family. The second thing is wages generally in Australia and in OECD nations have been increasing at sub 3%, about 26 to 2.8% wage increases each year. But the the price, the cost of health insurance has been increasing at around about 6 maybe sometimes 7%. So that may not seem a lot of difference each year, but it meaningfully adds up where people in their household budgets are thinking, why do I need health insurance? It's costing me a lot of money. I'm not using it. When I do use it, I don't get a lot of money back. I'm just not going to use it. And that's why we've seen the queuing or the wait lists in public health increase materially from six months, as I said, to over two years. I hear a lot on this podcast a lot about the need for artificial intelligence to help with diagnosis. I hear people talking about the importance of innovation, of treatment and of digital health as well. At the end of the day, though, surely we still need someone to be able to transfer an elderly person who's just had hip surgery to a toilet. It does seem like there actually is going to be a skill shortage, especially with the baby boomers hitting the nursing homes in a few years' time. What can we do as developers, as designers, as thinkers, as economists, as people in the industry that we love to try and improve patient outcomes in that next 10 to 15, 20 years? The innovation of technology and the use of technology, both from a primary care point of view all the way up to specialist care and even aged care, will no doubt improve outcomes over time just through the collection of data, the analysis of that data, and then thinking about what kind of care we can give those cohorts and earlier. And that should therefore translate into funding. Primary care is a prime example. Diabetes in this country is very poorly understood, but it's probably the largest contributor to chronic disease, both from an adolescent point of view and an aged point of view, which then goes to costs through specialist care or even in-hospital care. So the collection of data is the first thing. The second thing is what the technology will do, it will 
enables scalability in the sector. So a hospital, as I mentioned earlier, and I'll stick with maybe mental health, there'll be lower lengths of stay, seven to 10 days, as opposed to 14 to 21 days, and then more at home or community consultations or care provided. Technology enables that to happen, whether it be through collection of data, of through questionnaires of how that resident or patient is feeling, or through blood pressure, heart, cardiac issues, and through just levels of stress, sleeping, things like that, which a specialist will be able to analyze um, over a longitudinal basis of 12 months and then make better assessments. So technology will assist, but we're a industry that's a service industry that's led by people. So it's going to improve the margin of these businesses, but it's not going to be the savior. What we need to do is just have better cost structures and better models of care that prevent readmission of patients into the most expensive part of the care chain, which is hospitals. Yeah, it's interesting. I know Centuria very well, where you literally aim for that that short-stay hospital sector, the smaller, more decentralised hospitals. It's very different from the public sector these days, which are rolling out billion-dollar hospitals in Western Australia and billion-dollar hospitals in South Australia which I personally don't understand where you have so much money put towards a facade and a hospital, but you only get a few hundred beds. Can you please talk about the difference between spending all this money on, on central health versus the benefits of decentral health where you can probably have a greater reach of community, which also gives probably, in my opinion, if it's more decentralised, more access to staff as well? Having public hospitals and large public hospitals is necessary and particularly as we have an aging demographic and increased comorbidity and therefore increased acuity and non-ambulatory care you'll need people to stay overnight longer as the older they get in a public system but the public system should really be for highly acute patients right that's what it's there for the private system should really not be for that patient cohort at all it should be for just lower acuity acute and subacute care so that means elective so those hospitals don't need to be that big because you don't need to stay in overnight there's lots of evidence where we always talk about lower limb orthopedics hip and knee replacements get them home get them more mobile get them out of hospital there's a lot of political lobbying and points one on building healthcare and social infrastructure particularly post the pandemic but big is not always better in the private system, we just need to be more efficient. But in the public system, if we keep the rate of expenditure that we have in governments like WA and Queensland, for example, that's then going to encroach on other industries that need the funding, whether it be social security, whether it be tourism, whether it be education. There are industries in Australia that aren't getting as much proportionate funding because we keep funding big things in healthcare. So... It looks good, reads well, but is it the right model for future demographics is questionable. I know you're not necessarily an insurance expert in reference to private health, but what role do you think insurance companies have to play in the future of healthcare? I would argue that insurance companies are very reactive towards healthcare, not necessarily preventative, and they generally adopt a buy now, pay later 
response as opposed to a wellness response to, to enhance preventive care, just like you talked about with diabetes. Do you think insurance companies need to play more of a stronger role for the next 10 to 15 years or they'll just ride the coat wave of financial success knowing that more people will be entering healthcare? I think they absolutely have to be more active across the health chain. The private health insurance participation rate has fallen steadily since inception. We've had a small uptick in the recent six to 12 months, but again, affordability and complexity leads to its demise eventually. So it needs to try and ensure that it's getting the right patients, right? Not just frequent flies, but the right patients, which means it probably needs to invest upstream into primary care. Now we have seen examples of this, not just through NIB, but Medibank. It owns a primary care business through its health business, right? Private health insurance is not in primary care, but it is probably likely for them to talk about collecting data to understand the behaviors, to improve the whipsaw effect for those, as I said earlier, whether it be chronic illnesses like diabetes or asthma or mental health, to ensure that they're slowing down the rate of growth into the expensive part of the system. And if they do go to the hospital, get them into where they go in and go out more quickly. Health insurance businesses make their money from people having less claims. Well, that means they need to go upstream to ensure that that doesn't happen. So they absolutely have a role. If they don't really pursue that, then if the whole system, not before too long, say 40, 50 years, will be nationalised. There won't be any health insurance. It's a very different system in Australia that is prevalent in some areas in the world, but it changes a whole bunch of policies like tax, for example. I think that's a really good point. And I think you do see that with the likes of Medibank, they're changing their models of care with their short-stay hospitals. But you also see a lot of the private sectors playing a stronger role in those shorter-stay hospitals, like Ramsey doing a lot more towards mental health, but women's mental health. You've also got St. Vincent's, which is actually doing more of an outreach program. So I do think a lot of people are taking on board what you're talking about with private healthcare. Where do you see the role of private healthcare going forward? Do you think it becomes more specialised where paediatric or children's mental health, or do you think it would be better for them to say that generalist point of view as well? I actually think it goes into areas such as the NDIS, and that's where there needs to be some financial support. That thing is growing on the government's expenditure at a rate of knots. I can't remember what it has been in the last 12 months, but last time I looked a few years ago, it was growing at something like double figures, 10%. That's huge, right, when you've got wage growth at sub 3%. So it needs some private sector support, and it's misunderstood, and actually it makes a lot of sense for insurers. We've seen NIB recently start through one of its subsidiaries to fund an NDIS program. So you've got insurers right now funding that part. We've got baby boomers dying off and other parents who have looked after their kids who have been disabled. The kids are older now. They've got no accommodation. The accommodation bit through private insurance support is really important. So we talk about things like key worker accommodation. Well, this is another form of accommodation that can be in part funded out of pocket, but also through government and insurance subsidies that can be done on scale. Right now, the model is subscale, right? And therefore, you're not getting a lot of corporate institutional interest. So any funding support, whether it be through government, state or federal, or private health insurance will ensure 
a more institutional approach to some of these long-term issues, accommodation being one of them. So just before we go, just an important question. A lot of designers, developers, construction people within our health sector industry are literally talking about hospitals now that will probably be commissioned, you know, late 2028 to 2030, which is hidden with the sustainability goals of 2030, which is hidden with the baby boomers hitting aged care. What advice would you give for people now for the future who are doing this design, doing these feasibilities? What would you like them to look at when it's incorporating models of care, design, sustainability? What should we be doing now to try and soften the blow of the future? Jeez, that's a very interesting question that's got a lot of answers to it. Look, I think essentially is malleability. What does that mean? It's not always smaller, but it means we come from a landscape where the funding tap was always on. It's now sporadic and and costs are going up. It's harder to make money. So sometimes it's smaller, but when you're thinking about funding healthcare, think about all the adjacencies, right? There are probably three things I think about. One is the provision of care in a hospital. The other is the provision of care out of a hospital. And the other is accommodation. And those things can collaborate and work together. Accommodation is not just AIDS. It's not just for the disabled. It's also for key workers. It could also be for those, you know, visiting family members or those PhD who want to come and learn about diagnostic testing in Australia or in vitro fertilisation or prostheses manufacturing. We're not thinking about the whole chain as operating together cohesively. We're thinking about, oh, let's just build a hospital. And then suddenly we think, oh, well, we've got more population in that location. Let's build accommodation. It's got to be done cohesively, which lends itself to a more malleable healthcare product than what we've had before. Thank you very much for your time, Andrew. You're certainly a big name in the world of health. There's certainly a big name in the world at Centuria. Anyone that hasn't met you is missing out because your passion for healthcare is something that always inspires me. And I truly, truly can't wait to see where you'll be in the next 20 years as you lead the way in healthcare in the future as well. So thank you so much for your time. Very kind words. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being part of the industry and the podcast. You have been listening to the Australian Health Design Council podcast series, Health Design On The Go. If you'd like to learn more about the AHDC, please connect with us on our website or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.